Well, I want to begin our consideration of the closing psalm of the book of Psalms, Psalm 150, by first reading to you all something written by John Calvin. John Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, begins, as you might well suppose, with a few words of introduction. And as strange as it might seem tonight, I want to read from that introduction now, now that we've reached the end of this great collection of Old Testament songs of the church. What follows is a part of the way Calvin introduced his commentary on the Psalms to his readers. He said, The varied and resplendent riches which are contained in this treasury, it is no easy matter to express in words. So much so that I well know that whatever I shall be able to say will be far from approaching the excellence of the subject. But as it is better to give to my readers some taste, however small, of the wonderful advantages they will derive from the study of this book than to be entirely silent on the point, I may be permitted briefly to advert to a matter the greatness of which does not admit of being fully unfolded. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. And I ask you, doesn't that so get it right? When you think of just the brief time that we spend in some of these selected psalms, haven't we on some level found the anatomy of parts of our souls? a mirror reflecting back our own emotions, our griefs, our sorrows, our fears, our doubts, our hopes, our cares, our perplexities. And with all due respect to John Calvin, that might only be a mere fraction of the emotions one experiences as he or she reads the Psalms. Often it is when I minister to someone going through some physical trial, perhaps an illness, my words will become most filled with, if not in my words, but in my thoughts, the words of the Psalms. How blessed it is to know that when we have struggles, others have struggled well before us. And they found great comfort, the greatest comfort in their Lord. The Lord who the Psalms tell us is our rock and our fortress and our might and our help whose words themselves become our very comfort. These psalms, every one of them, is such a blessing to people on this pilgrimage through life. And as you reflect upon that reality, as you consider how the book of Psalms truly is an anatomy of all the parts of our soul, see as well how right it is then for the book of Psalms to rightly end with praises to God. I'd ask you to remember that as we pray and then read this 150th psalm together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to this last of the psalm book, and we ask, Lord, that we would be a people filled with praise to you. 
We ask that this psalm would open up our eyes, as so many of the other psalms have done, to what it is that we as a people should do, what it is that you require of us. We also pray, Lord, that as we read this closing psalm, that we would be more enthralled with who you are as God. So, Lord, please work through your word. By your spirit, work through your word. Transform our lives. Help us to live better as followers of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. This 150th Psalm, like the handful of Psalms that lead up to it, are all about praising God. You could perhaps say that the five closing Psalms form a crescendo leading up to this particular climactic point, this last Psalm. But think about this chorus of praises as also being the finishing of that journey, a journey through a gamut of various emotional experiences. When John Calvin lists the gamut in his introduction, hope might be the only emotion on his abbreviated list to which we would attach a favorable emotional response. Things like grief, sorrows, fears, doubts, not so favorable. But still, even so, even so, praise is the most fitting capstone. If these psalms provide us one underlying insight into life, it just might be that as we walk through this life, God walks with us. And we feel from the psalms and perhaps feel it most that he is with us when we see his blessing, when we see that being described in the psalms, some way in the psalms. We sense it when we stand in awe of the, uh, of the creation that he has made. He has been with us, and we have seen that in the psalm when we see that the goodness is seen in his law or the steadfastness of his, of his enduring nature, the enduring nature of his covenantal love. We see that in those great psalms that that demonstrate the greatness and goodness of God. But then we also see it in those other psalms, psalms which voice lament. Some psalms find a given psalmist in a, a metaphorical mire of painful parts of life, like being led into the valley of the shadow of death. The writer of more than one of the psalms writes about the sense of being in danger of slipping away, aware of his own sinful, uh, human sinfulness. But the nearness of God remains in those parts of life, whether they are good or whether they are bad. God's nearness is expressed in the Psalms, and he is upholding us no matter how dire our circumstances might be. And again, doesn't that just make so appropriate that a multitude of praise is the echo 
in which the book of Psalms ends. There is a sense of what I suggest we find in all of the Psalms, all of the Psalms, leading up to this more appropriate, most appropriate ending, an ending of praise. That is the sense we get from all the Psalms. It leads us to this point. My undergraduate degree in college was in the field of journalism. I bring that up tonight in regard to this psalm because in the field of journalism, we are taught to be inquisitive. At least that was journalism 40 years ago. That inquisitive nature usually involves seeking answers to six primary questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And I want to take a look at this 150th Psalm with those six questions in our mind, seeking answers to those questions from this Psalm. We will ask each one of those questions tonight, though not necessarily in the order that I read. And we'll look at this Psalm to see what answers we get. So for example, if we are seeking to find what the Psalm is all about, seeking to answer that question, what, I don't think it takes much for us to see that the answer to that question, what, is praise. The word praise itself appears in this psalm 13 times, if my count is correct. 13 times in a psalm of merely six verses. So it takes only a cursory reading for us to see that the psalm is all about praise. Every line of it is about praise. And when we move from that simple question to our next question for tonight, which will be who, well then the journalist within me is asking what will we see? Who is the center of this psalm? And if I ask you that question, if I ask you to play journalist with me and how you would answer that question, I suppose you might say the Lord our God. It is he who is the one who receives our praises. Our praises are lifted to him. Who is to be praised? It is God. Praise rises up to him. The first verse, from the first verse to the last, we see it. And in the first verse and in the last, we see it twice in both verses that we're told to praise him. And then throughout the psalm, there is the pronoun him. And each time it refers to our Lord, our God. And each time it is used in relation to our praises. He is the one who is the object of our praise. But then sometimes the journalist finds more than one answer to the same question. Do you see in this psalm that there is another answer to the question of who? Who receives praise but God alone? But who is it who does the praising? Well, the answer might come first when we understand that the whole of the psalm is being spoken as if it's a command to the reader. Whoever reads this psalm should understand that he or she is to be among those who praise the Lord... But the psalm also says more plainly and more explicitly that everything that has breath should praise him. We probably at our first reading of those words are still limited in regard to what we might have in mind. Our thoughts will narrow in on the idea of all humanity as being that which has breath and thus that which praises. After all, only human beings are the recipient of the psalm. But the implication of the words used here really truly means that every living creature is to be counted among those who praise the only God. Everything that has breath means everything that has breath. So already by asking these journalistic type questions we have asked and we have learned what are we to do, 
we are to praise. Who is to be praised? Well, God, of course. Who is to do the praising? All of humanity, yes, but really every living thing should join in the praises of the true God. How about another question? What do we see in the psalm when we ask the question, where? Where are we to praise God? Well, the very first verse provides two answers. The psalm there says we praise the Lord in his sanctuary. And that's followed by the command to praise him in the heavens. Now that could perhaps be thought of as if we are being told that there are two primary places to praise the Lord, two differing locations. The sanctuary could simply refer to a gathering place for the corporate worship of our Lord. We are gathered in the sanctuary of this church. And since the psalm was written in the Old Testament times, perhaps in light of that we would think perhaps as well of the tabernacle or of the temple, the place where God was worshipped in Jerusalem, thinking that maybe those were the places that were in view when the sanctuary was mentioned. And if that is to be separated from the second command related to praise, it would simply mean that there is both an earthly corporate temple worship and a worship of God in the heavens. But I'm also reminded of how in Hebrews the ministry in the temple is described as being a shadow or a copy of heavenly things. The sanctuary God occupies is in another sense his heavenly throne room. And since our God is an all-knowing, all-present God, he hears all our praises, hears them in the heavens, whether they are raised on this earth in a corporate setting like we are doing here and now, in this place, or he hears us in the privacy of our homes, or on a hike through the woods, or in our cars. God's location is everywhere, but the scriptural home for God is especially in the sanctuary of the eternal heavenly place, a place where he hears all the praises offered to him by all his people, by everything that has breath. So the places of verse 1 could be two places, or they could be that there is an implication that God hears all praises raised anywhere in his heavenly abode. Or maybe it's really a combination of those two. At any rate, at any rate, wherever we praise God, we can be assured that God will hear. What, who, where? Now how about why? Why should we worship this God? Why should we praise him with our worship? Well, the psalm doesn't say all that much on the topic other than what is said in the second verse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Not a lot of words, but does the psalm really need to say much more? God does such mighty works, all sorts of many mighty works. He creates a universe. He speaks in a formless and void place comes into being. And that earthly place then begins to take form and it begins to be filled. He also does the mighty work of giving life. He sustains our every day and he redeems our lives. When humanity through the fall of Adam brought upon itself an eternal death, well in Christ, by God's mighty work, he gives in place of the death we have earned an eternal life. Mighty deeds. And not one of those mighty deeds, mightier than the God himself who does those deeds. Excellent greatness belongs to our Lord. All his works 
Every mighty deed demands his praise because of his excellent greatness. So let me summarize again thus far. We have the what, it is praise. We have two who's. First, we are the ones who do the praising along with everything else that has breath. And secondly, God is the one to whom we bring our praises. We also have the answer to where. Anywhere we are is a place where we can worship God in our earthly sanctuary or in any part of the realm of creation. And wherever we are and wherever we praise, God hears our praises where he is. He is omnipresent. We also have the why we are to praise, because God is exceedingly worthy. We grasp his worthiness as we perceive his mighty deeds. We praise God because of his excellent greatness. But then how? How is it that we are to praise this God? Well, it seems in regard to this psalm, when we read the psalm, there is an emphasis on the performing arts. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. As you are thinking of music and dance, however, think with me also of some of the particular occasions in the Old Testament when some of those instruments would be played or even when dancing would have been done to the praise of God. The trumpet was heard from Mount Sinai when God gave his people the Ten Commandments. It was sounded as an announcement for the Day of Atonement. Moses was instructed to make a trumpet for the gathering of the people and for the breaking up of camp. The tambourine and dance are coupled together here as they also were when Moses and particularly Moses' sister Miriam and the women danced after the great deliverance at the Red Sea following the crossing of the Red Sea. Cymbals, harps, and lyres accompanied the priestly singers as the Ark of the Covenant was being laid in the holy place of the tabernacle, the temple. And I say all of this to you because this listing of how we are to praise might come with some limitations. After all, God's word is instructed to us on how we are to praise. But there is also, on another level, a sense that we are being told to praise God with our all, with our everything and anything, certainly any instrument we have at any appropriate time. The psalmist seems to see instruments and even dancing at times as appropriate ways to praise God, if not in the sanctuary, then in elsewhere. Then in elsewhere. So we have the what we are to do, we are to praise. We have the who, God is the object of our praise, and we have the who relating to us, living creatures, praising God. We have the where. We actually can praise God wherever we are because he hears our praises in his heavenly sanctuary. We have the why because of his mighty deeds and excellent greatness. And we have the how with anything and everything we have. Yet there's still one more journalistic question to be answered. Anyone remember what that is? It's when. When do we praise God? Well, if you scour the psalm, what you'll find is that there is no explicit answer to that question in the psalm. But then again, when you start considering when the instruments played were played and danced and where the dancing was done in the Old Testament, 
what we discover is that the occasion for all those things are done sometimes as part of well-planned worship and sometimes more spontaneously. So the explicit answer in the psalm might be missing, but let me just suggest that the implicit answer to the when is really all the time. We praise God for who he is with all we have all the time. And that's Psalm 150. And let me close tonight by taking you back again to what Calvin said in his introduction to his commentary to the Psalms. This type of wondrous and immense praise comes after the Psalms have taken us on a trip through a window to see the greatness of God in our lives as he is leading us to safety. Doing that through many different types of experiences of life. The Psalms take us on a, a journey of life sometimes with great experience of wondrous joy and awe and sometimes through parts of life filled with griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts and sometimes even filled with our own human sin. Not much pleasant things to ponder. But still whether the times are good or whether the times are bad, whether they are difficult or hard or easy and nice, we are to be God's people of constant praise. We praise God for his constant nearness, for his continual help, always as we traverse this pilgrimage through this thing called life, all while on our way to a place of eternal praises. Well, I hope we've learned well from this psalm and the others as well that we've learned better to be instilled with a fervent desire to praise our God through every trial and every blessing we experience in life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.